This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today is part two of our two-part holiday package. We have uh, some more uh, reflections and uh, collections of voices from the last year. This is another mosaic we've put together for the holidays. Uh, If part one really focused on race and identity, uh, part two is much more focused on some of the broader dynamics in democracy and some of the broader legacies as we get to the new year. Yeah, we're really discussing virtue and poetry, and how we can find a a beautiful future and beauty in our present struggles to to find a better way. I I like that so much, Zachary. Uh, we, We live in a world that's often filled with ugliness, but there's also so much beauty. And that beauty is connected uh, not simply to the politics of democracy, but to the lives and experiences of so many of us. And uh, we're happy to share these beautiful voices and with we're you. We're going to continue to keep exploring democracy in the next next decade. In the next decade, right, which begins very soon. So please listen to this uh, mosaic of our thoughts and ideas and reflections from many of our guests. And uh, let's all get some rest and get ready for the new year and more episodes of This Is Democracy starting soon. Zachary, what's the title of your poem? To the Rest of Humanity. Well, let's hear it. I think I first wondered about diplomacy, driving on a dirt road near Agra and cows bathing in the river, and I think I thought of it as that, bouncing between the seat cushions and the tea stands and dew grass on the side of a highway, knowing the ancient fort on the other side of the ridge, and which water is safe to drink on plastic chairs clustered on the lawns of humidity. International feeling between the Japanese Toyota, the American tea drinker, and the Uttar Pradesh afternoon breaking over the hills like sunrise, but at four o'clock when you still have to get to Jaipur before dark, speeding through the trees like you're flying into Rajasthan. And I think we are all like this at one point in our lives the Hindu Jewish great great grandson of immigrants sinking into endless metropolises and Taj Mahals like the solid wonderment of adolescence finding meaning. And I can't tell, but sometimes I feel like Salim Sinai and Midnight's children, like I can fill my generation of humanity like the typeface of my life. And sometimes I'm not sure if it's Comic Sans or Times New Roman, but we are drawn to each other as if by candlelight. And often I wonder if we are like every other generation, the lost ones and heroes, the saintly ones and the ones tearing through decency with giant shears. And I bet we all want to find some token of goodwill in the middle of the night, the dumpsters behind the high school, to hand over to the birds or to the wind, knowing we can find someone like us. Hmm. What is your poem about, Zachary? Well, my poem is really about uh, human connections and how, particularly as Americans uh, and people who come from all over the world, we... We feel like the world is very small, like we know so many different cultures, but at the same time, we often get caught up in our daily lives and what's going on in our own bubble, and we, f- we forget the connections that we have to other people and other people's suffering. Particularly, I study South Africa, as Dr. Surrey mentioned, and South Africa and Rhodesia after Rhodesia collapses in 1978. Um, South Africa really becomes the last bastion of white rule, and they really fixate on it. That ends in 1994 as a sort of marker of what a white state could look like. And then you see this outpouring of violence. Um, And I don't think those things are unrelated, right? The last fall of the only real, in air quotes, white supremacist inscribed government collapses and you see this upsurge in violence. 
So you have this sense, especially in the 60s, that these gains that I was talking about them trying to protect are starting to evaporate. The sort of global consensus that they had seen, whether it was through colonial empire, sort of informal colonization, that seems to be disappearing for them. And in the ways that sort of Southern segregationists or modern conservatives were able to adapt and perform sort of a respectable civil rights uh, positionality where it was not incredibly threatening to their white uh, um, base, but it wasn't overwhelmingly, you know, uh, inclusive. Uh, White power activists never tried to do that. And so they are very unique in the fact that they had to kind of segregate themselves. Um, No pun intended, but that they were pushed out of the acceptable spectrum of conversation in the United States, particularly after the civil rights movement, where conservatives and liberals alike, both Republicans and Democrats, kind of sectioned off acceptable like specters and parameters of discussion. This famously happened in the Republican Party where William F. Buckley and others said, we don't want to be associated with Mm -hmm. the John Birchers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that seems so different from where we are today today. I would always say that there's no trade-off. I mean, it's uh, these are complementary to each other. You may actually uh, think that in a short term, uh, you may have certain gain and then you would get carried away by the right. fact that democracy may hamper, you know, your development, but in the long term, and you have the example of uh, United States. Right. And, 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 and India has got an incredible democracy. Right. And I'm sure that that's India's strength. And even in terms of the economy, you know, how to be inclusive and how to actually bring the interest of the larger group and sections and the marginalized into the development story. And we have been doing very well. But having said that, uh, we need to learn a lot of the things from other developed countries and who got it right. And to give one example. Please. Uh, um, India started off as an agricultural society and then most of our GDP used to come from the agriculture sector in the 1950s. And from there, we uh, transformed into uh, the manufacturing. But that process, we couldn't actually handle well. So India didn't become a big manufacturing center, unlike China, which could leverage that. But today, in case of the service sector, the leapfrogging we are doing in the service sector, and I remember that, you know, when I was a child, uh, to get a telephone connection, somebody has to wait for one year or two years. I remember that too. Yeah, and today, India has got actually the largest internet connection after China. And how from the, uh, you know, not having the telephone connections to having uh, universalized telephone internet connection to the whole society. Uh, That's an incredible story. So uh, we need to now take that to the next level. And for that, the most important thing is actually how do you leverage your human capacity by providing the greatest education to them and the skill to maneuver those kind of uh, things in the world. The caste system as, you know, intrinsically in in its classic form, it was undemocratic. It placed people into a hierarchy of um, a hierarchy of status and sometimes a hierarchy of occupation that they were supposed to pursue. The occupational part fell away at least a century or more ago, but the hierarchy of status persisted. And it also persisted in um, forms which were outlawed quite early on in the Indian um, under the Indian Republic such as the practice of untouchability excluding people from uh, particular areas um, excluding them from the use of common wells or water sources and so on uh, those 
might very occasionally now still occur in practice, but they are illegal and they can be pro- and they can be and are prosecuted. As far as um, in, since the caste uh, caste as a sort of identity has in fact become more prominent in the same way perhaps as ethnicity has become more prominent in many parts of the world. In fact, I wrote a book, um, you know, in which I argued that this has been the um, uh, that the shift towards social uh, classification as identity has superseded the role of the economic and the functional roles of caste as hierarchy. So now it's more like ethnic blocks competing, many ethnic blocks competing. The Republicans uh, in 1866, certainly by that time, it was already evident that Johnson was, you know, not going to, uh, uh, you know, implement uh, any of uh, the Republican agenda, which was to have uh, a reconstruction in the South um, that would safeguard the rights of the newly freed slaves. And um, public opinion at that time was very much with Johnson's opponents, uh, because most of these southern states, with Johnson's permission, had passed these black codes, uh, which really did reduce African Americans to a state of semi-servitude. So in the North, there was a real reaction to this, and that's how you get that supermajority in both houses, just like uh, the uh, 2018 elections, where the Democrats won over the House. Um, as I think somewhat of a reaction to what was happening, uh, you had that in the North. So public opinion in the North certainly was very much with Johnson's critics, uh, with his uh, Republican opponents. Um, In the South, black people and Southern white unionists, who you would think was Johnson's natural base because he was a unionist, um, they opposed him too. One of the things it did that is most controversial, I mean, I think the casting it in terms of the First Amendment set some people off, but but the, the big compromise, the big political compromise in Buckley was using that framework, the First Amendment framework, and what criteria, or cri- as it turns out, criterion, uh, would be uh, needed to be met in order to uh, infringe on the First Amendment, gotcha. if you will. And... And that turned out to be corruption or the perception of corruption. Uh, We're going to open, of course, with our scene-setting poem for Mr. Zachary Suri. What is your poem titled today, Zachary? Nothing. Nothing? Yeah. Okay. Titled nothing. Okay. Let's 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 hear something about nothing. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Cities don't take long to sink underwater into the ominous depths. When the waves come to Miami and New York, what will they do with the leftover concrete? Seas don't take long to become desert and dry sand. When the clouds leave the arrow forever, what will they do with the leftover salt? Houses don't take long to fold in heavy winds. When the hurricanes wash along the coastlines, what will they do with all the plywood in the streets? Leaders don't take long to forget all the suffering people they've met. When promises and obligations are forgotten, what will we do with all the empty words? And why are we left just taping jumbled letters to construction fences just to see some meaning in the words, the sounds and smells of the sand blown from the dump trucks in the wind? And why do we keep finding ourselves taping prayers to the roofs of our minds to send our worries into some invisible electrical signal to some higher power in boats across the Mediterranean? 
And what will we do when the UN is flooded by the East River, when Brussels in the winter feels like Barcelona? Where will they go to do nothing, when you can't ski in the Swiss Alps and mountain resorts where they do nothing? What will we do with all the pages they put on PDFs for us to read so they can forget them? It doesn't take long to lose a planet, to lose a home. When we've destroyed it all, where will they meet to do nothing? I think that, um, that one thing that in the long run that would be helpful uh, in improving the quality of, of governance and therefore of democracy in general, this is in, in a big deal in Latin America but in other places as well, would be to work to elect people and then to agitate politically and extra, you know, outside of voting, the other ways that we participate in democratic politics. For something like a global wealth tax or some international effort to eliminate tax shelters, uh, that would reduce the power of oligarchies. I think that would improve both the quality of right-wing governance in Latin American countries, and I think that it would also improve the quality of, uh, of, of left-wing governments uh, that you know, often emerge in a sort of out of response and frustration. From my perspective, I see a vibrant free enterprise system and our democracy in the U.S. being absolutely, directly, and integrally connected and mutually supportive when all is working well. Mm -hmm. um, I think our free enterprise system operates as well as it does because of the democratic environment in which it's based, and I think our democracy is as strong as it is because of that uh, free enterprise system. Iranian foreign policy today, like the foreign policy of any country, has multiple traditions. Right. I'll talk about two. Uh, the dominant would be the tradition I'll call Khomeinism, the legacy of Ayatollah Khomeini. But there's also a more pragmatical, more pragmatic tradition hmm. in contemporary Iranian foreign policy making. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini really is the founding father of the Islamic Republic of Iran and had a deep impact on the Islamic Republic's foreign policy. There's several founding principles to his foreign policy vision. One was a genuine non-alignment. There were plenty of leaders in the Cold War who called themselves non-aligned, mm. but Khomeini took that, I think, more seriously, took that farther than most did. We're overwhelmed with information. But what does that information mean? Uh, you have to make sure that you're cultivating through your news feeds in a way that you have something thoughtful to take away and understand about them. So therefore, people's views are not pushed on you, but you have an ability to think about them creatively. Uh, that's point one. Point two, what you can, can you do? America is a very involved, non-isolated country. Uh, it doesn't matter if we have oceans, our trade flows are very much macked up. You looked in our demographic composition, it's more and more international, uh, more and more multicultural. So one of the things that's important for Americans to do is understand the world. And that means getting out and traveling. Uh, it is, I can tell you, I, I have a wife who's an American diplomat. I am currently living abroad. There is nothing so educational for an American as to spend a little bit time of, abroad. Uh, one, because it allows you to see your own country with a different set of eyes. Uh, it hasn't diminished uh, in any way what I think about the United States or my love for the United States. It's actually grown it. Sure. But thinking about it, talking about it, 
thinking about how other societies do things, what we could learn, what we could teach them. Right. And what they can teach us. Absolutely. I think this is a real key ingredient because as the 21st century takes off, as you, Miranda, get to play more of a role on this, if you don't have the fluency, if you don't have the ability to understand things from other people's eyes, you're going to have a less of an ability to shape things. So you have uh, already uh, a, a um, rhetorical, and words matter, uh, a rhetorical set of images that Americans believe, at least, they're fighting for. Now, of course, on the battlefield, um, men are fighting to, uh, to stay alive right. and to keep right. their friends alive. But in the larger sense, this war is already being depicted before the United States enters it as a war to, uh, to, to extend democracy uh, and to preserve it, to keep it safe. I would say if I look back on my own research, which has compared the way that presidential administrations in particular have looked at international religious freedom abroad and the different strategies that the United States takes to promote religious freedom elsewhere, I think I've come up with two overarching lessons that might have something to say for our current day and our domestic context, because the connections between our foreign policy and our domestic policy in this area aren't that separate. Right. Um, so first of all, is that we have to know the religious context in which we're operating in. So, Paul, is, is that really what these debates are? Are they just reality TV? I don't know. I don't really understand what they're for anymore. I really think they are so not useful for, for the, the, the party in opposition right now. And, you know, and people can disagree with me. They want more democracy. No, it's kind of like you know, we can have you know representative democracy, and everybody gets a say. It's kind of like Rousseau. You know, times two hundred and fifty million right. people. Right. Great. You know, it's. You know, for me, the way we used to do this is the people went out and they campaigned. You know, and, you know, Jimmy Carter campaigned a lot over in Iowa, and he caught on, and he won. I don't think that uh, Barack Obama did well in Iowa because of the debates right. with him and John Edwards and Hillary Clinton. He caught on because he was a really good candidate. You know, and so being a good candidate is not the same thing as winning a debate with 20 people. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's not the same thing mm -hmm. where everybody mm -hmm. gets like a couple of moments and you're right. trying to figure out canned lines, right. which almost always sound bad because they're canned lines that you memorize. Exactly. You know, it's kind of like I don't. It's, I, for the life of me, this this is this is a heck of a way to nominate somebody. Mm. <laughs> well, we're going to focus on Turkey today, speaking right. of cultural confusion. And we're going to begin, of course, with a scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, what is your poem titled today, Zachary? Images of Turkey. Images of Turkey. Okay, let's hear it. Turkey, you are eating donor kebabs in an Oxford side alley 10 years ago. You are the family friends from bus trips across the entire state of Wisconsin, names that are hard to pronounce to our American tongues. You are some mythical interpretation of Hercules at the Dardanelles, Xerxes and his bridge. You are the lost Grecians of Ilium, the namesake of Billy Pilgrim's urban America. You are built upon the bones of myth, upon the ruins of the walls of Poseidon. You are that time I stayed up late in the dark listening to the news of a military coup on a bridge from 5,000 miles away. Turkey, butt of so many poultry jokes, too many gobble-gobbles, learning about your siege of Cyprus from the travel anchor on the DVD. 
Turkey. My parents trekked across you in their half-beat rental car for their honeymoon, and my feet still float across the rug they bought in the morning. And now it is stained with hot chocolate and dust. Bedeviler of Bosnia, catalyst of Viennese triumph and pastries, possessor of Palestine, Turkey, Ottoman partaker in world war, collapsed empire, dabbling in democracy, NATO member, taking in refugees from Syria, and Baghdadi was just killed along your border. And it is kind of surreal that you are in between it all, neither Europe nor Asia, not completely Middle Eastern, split, O lost soul of Hati, between continents loosely defined, split, O longing soul of so many writers, between freedom and tyranny, mixing and mixing like the way the wheels spin on Hercule Poirot's train headed west from Istanbul. Turkey, there are images of green conflict zones on live maps of Syrian dissolution that trace back to you, and there are pictures of you languishing under a sweet full moon in a rooftop restaurant on my mother's dresser. I think more than any other lesson I got out of this book, and having the privilege to spend a lot of time with a lot of whistleblowers, Although um, their difficulties are, are, are extreme uh, and, and their ability to actually fix problems is sometimes limited, the fact that an individual, one person armed with facts, can step forward, take on a multi-billion dollar uh, multinational corporation or an entire government agency, and prevail um, is a really uplifting thing. I mean, the voice, the power of the truth is remarkably strong, and I think that's Empowering that voice further um, is, is something that, that will undoubtedly bring us closer to a more just society. Uh, it's uplifting to see these people say, look, I had to do it because that's just the way I am. That's, a way I'm, that's the way Americans are. And I think, uh, as one of my whistleblowers said, we've kind of forgotten how to be Americans, and, and, and they may help us remember how. I certainly came to a new appreciation of America, of our of our resilience, um, of the unity we're capable of as a, as a country, uh, knowing that that's possible, um, uh, knowing the fact that we were targeted rather than so many other countries in the world, partly because of our virtues, I do think, which are inimical to, to the perverse jihadist, jihadist vision. Uh, so in, in that sense, it actually gave me a, certainly the outpouring of interest in national service and public mm-hmm. service once afterwards and that's not just about military enlistments right, you know right, but of course, um, of course. Uh, it, firefighters for example yeah exactly right. uh, you know uh, uh, policemen educators right it, it it was a painful shock to the national conscience that also reminded us of living for something larger than ourselves and uh, and I don't I don't want to lose that I think there's a danger that the pendulum on human rights, has swung too far in the other direction. Uh, If you think of it as a pendulum over the last 15 or 20 years, I think you're right in describing it, that there was a moment at which these ideas, it seemed necessary to vindicate these ideas all over the world by any means, and the United States had the means to do that. that. That way of thinking about it, I think, was too extreme in one direction. And I think we're at a moment where there's a danger of the pendulum going too far in the other right. direction of being too restrained, too uh, pessimistic. Yeah, isolationist. Too Maybe isolationist, right. e- exactly. So what can citizens do in that context? I think the one answer, one way to think about it is to try to modulate those swings of the pendulum to, to stay committed to the, to the dream, the common flag of human rights, to that vision while recognizing the trade-offs. And so to exercise a, 
a moderating influence and to hold people who are making these decisions to account. Yes. Um, so saying at a moment like this, whatever is changing in American domestic politics, whatever is changing in international politics, nonetheless, it is necessary to think about these principles and to try to uphold them in ways that are possible, even while recognizing that we may not get to that perfect vision. Nonetheless, it, I think it's the job of any citizen in a, in a democracy to hold people to account and to keep that vision before them. Well, it wasn't an easy task, believe me. Just being a human being is not an easy task uh, because of the way we are uh, built and put together. But uh, some of the things that helped me really get through was my religious belief mm. because I wasn't always a, a, a practicing individual when it came to having... Uh, some kind of insight into a higher being. Uh, and and the reason for that is because of the, the area I came from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very rare. It's very rare uh, in this country, uh, areas like what they describe as the ghetto and the hood. It's very rare that people have the notion to even want to seek out uh, consciousness because they're dealing with so many problems. Of course, of course. But that very factor became what my life hinged upon while I was incarcerated. Um, not so much as the church, but religion, the idea of a higher power, and you can call on that power, even though it wasn't explained to me exactly how I could call on it and and, and who to look for, but that was the core of me actually surviving the, the psychological trauma sure. because to be in prison, like I've said to Eric on a number of occasions, you have to be a special type of individual to go through that and then come out and assume a position like right. myself and have some sanity. Yeah, now, I'm not saying I'm the most perfect sane man, <laughs> but the crisis and the hurdles that I had to jump over, I mean, that's rare. Right. Up. That's very rare. I think one place that could take more of a leadership role than they're doing are our universities um, and our Greek life in particular. Um, there's a lot of... Um, education that needs to happen, a lot of uh, consequences that could be imposed within a university environment. Um, some of that can be done by sororities saying, you know, we're not going to have parties with you unless you've had this training. Um, there are levers that people can use um, to get people to have the difficult conversations. I think that one of the challenges we have, um, this is pervasive within academia, is that we have people who have no concept, no understanding, no knowledge of the trauma of sexual assault who are asked to make policy about sexual assault on college campuses. And were they to really have a true understanding of the depth of the problem on their campus um, and have real tools to be able to address it, we might be able to get um, better results on our college campuses. The education has to start young. Zachary, what's the title of your poem? To the Rest of Humanity. Well, let's hear it. 
I think I first wondered about diplomacy driving on a dirt road near Agra and cows bathing in the river. And I think I thought of it as that, bouncing between the seat cushions and the tea stands and dew grass on the side of a highway, knowing the ancient fort on the other side of the ridge and which water is safe to drink on plastic chairs clustered on the lawns of humidity. An international feeling between the Japanese Toyota, the American tea drinker, and the Uttar Pradesh afternoon breaking over the hills like sunrise, but at four o'clock when you still have to get to Jaipur before dark, speeding through the trees like you're flying into Rajasthan. And I think we are all like this at one point in our lives. The Hindu Jewish great great grandson of immigrants sinking into endless metropolises and Taj Mahals like the solid wonderment of adolescence finding meaning. And I can't tell, but sometimes I feel like Salim Sinai and Midnight's children, like I can fill my generation of humanity like the typeface of my life. And sometimes I'm not sure if it's Comic Sans or Times New Roman, but we are drawn to each other as if by candlelight. And often I wonder if we are like every other generation, the lost ones and heroes, the saintly ones and the ones tearing through decency with giant shears. And I bet we all want to find some token of goodwill in the middle of the night, in the dumpsters behind the high school, to hand over to the birds or to the wind, knowing we can find someone like us. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.